You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming with Pastor Keith Miller. If you're visiting with us, I, we, we stand to honor the reading of God's Word because I really do believe this. I feel this. The elders of this church feel this. Uh, many of you feel this, that I, I don't have anything better to offer you than what's in this book, and we believe that this book, the Bible, is the Word of God, that with every word we read in these pages, when we read it, you hear the very voice that spoke the galaxies into existence you know, through these words. And so we are in Matthew chapter 5, or not chapter 5, chapter 7, uh, beginning with verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You can be seated. I uh, want you to know at the beginning, if I could have just skipped over this passage, I probably would have. (laughs) This is another case for the strength in in expository preaching. This is the next passage we're faced with. And uh, I've got to be honest with you, I don't feel comfortable with it. And my guess is you probably, some of you probably don't feel comfortable with it either. How many of you have read this passage before today? (laughs) Okay, yeah, many of you. Uh, It's a difficult passage. So we're in Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 21, and uh, I said it's it's an uncomfortable passage where Jesus said, says, not everyone who says to me, not just Lord wants, but Lord, Lord. It's, it's, a, it's a literary device that Jesus uses where there will be people who will call him Lord to the second degree. It's kind of like us using an explanation point or, or all caps. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, verse 21, I'm, kind of, I'm okay with, but when you get to verse 22, that's where it becomes, it gets a little uncomfortable. On that day, what day? The day of judgment, that day. On that day, many will say to me, not a few, not some, but many, Lord, Lord, did we not Teach the word of God in your name. Preach in your name. Cast out demons in your name. Help people get liberated from various addictions in your name. Do many works in your name. Served on the mission field in your name. Pastored churches in your name. Taught children's church in your name. Helped out in the nursery in your name was an elder on the elder board in your name. And I will say, I never knew you. Now, what kind of Savior would do that? Like, what kind of Savior 
will will do that to those who not only call him Lord, but call him Lord to the second degree during their lifetime, serve in the name of Jesus during their lifetime, only to be told after they die, I never knew you. Like that's the question that we're being faced with right now as we look at this passage. This is the question that must be answered. In the Gospel of John, we read these words, but to all who did receive him, receive who? Jesus, who believed in his name, who gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Like the, the, there, there will be people who will come to Jesus thinking that they receive salvation and will stand before him on the day of judgment and find out that they had no such thing. So I don't know if you remember some time ago when I was preaching through this series, I mentioned a phrase called, uh, the phrase is a hermeneutical key. Anybody remember that? Like two people in the first service did. So first service wins. Um, <laughs> one, one person in the back. You, you don't need to remember it. But I, wanna, I, I just want to reiterate what, what, what I said about the hermeneutical key. Uh, hermeneutics is a, study, is a system of studying the Bible, a science of studying the Bible. We do an inductive Bible study course here. It's like 10 weeks long. It's great. I love it. We're going to be offering it again, I think, in the summer um, for anybody who's interested. But it's a system of studying the Bible. When I say hermeneutical key, is that there is a word, there is a phrase, there is a verse, maybe a, a, a paragraph that, is, it, that serves as the key to understanding the point of, of what's being said in that in that chapter in the Bible or in that, in that paragraph in the Bible or in that verse in the Bible. It, it's a hermeneutical key. I, I, the illustration I used last time was that the hermeneutical key for understanding the Bible is Jesus Christ. He is the hermeneutical key of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, it is about him. It makes sense of who he is and, and, and just everything that we read in there. The hermit, there's a hermeneutical key that I want to propose to you, and I, I don't want this to sound too academic to you. It's just This is going to follow us all through the sermon today. The hermeneutical key in this, this paragraph that we're looking at that some of you are troubled by is found in, in, in verse 23, and it is a word. And so this is really important. It is when Jesus said, and I will declare to them, the many who prophesied in his name, who cast out demons in his name, who did many works in his name, I will say to them, I never knew you. Now the word know there is a, a Greek word. It's the Greek word gnosko. It is a, in the Old Testament, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's used of the word, it's the word that's used when Abraham knew Sarah. It, it's not just a, a word that's used in a sexual sense, it's used in a full knowledge sense. Like, a, a, not just in your head, but this is, there's a relationship here, and this relationship is growing, and it's deepening, and I'm, no, I'm getting to know this person. Jesus said that he will say to the many, I never gnoscoed you. I never, I never knew you. I never knew you. So I want to say that that is the hermeneutical key to understanding this, the rest of this passage, and I, I think it will make sense in just a few minutes. Uh, Jesus could have said, there's another word for no here, he could have said, or he could have used a different word, 
He could have used the same word for no that he used in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, where he said this, uh, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The word that he uses there is oida. So there's oida and then there's gnosko. Oida is like, I, can, I, can, I, I know what my wife's face looks like in a crowded room. That's, I think that's oida. Gnosko is, I know I, I've going to be celebrating 25 years of marriage with my wife in May. I gnosko her. Those of you who have children, I know my children. I gnosko them. They gnosko me. Um, now you have gnosko in your brain for the rest of the day. You'll be making poems and singing songs. No. Uh, he could have used oida, but he uses gnosko here. This is really important. So I never gnoscoed you. So there are two people that this passage is addressing. And I didn't even know what to call this sermon. I, I, I waffled. I was just like, wait, I don't know. I don't know. What should I call it? And so the title of the sermon is Two Types of Christians, because I couldn't come up with anything better than that. Uh, but, the two ty- the, but Jesus is describing two types of people who, who, who use the word Lord in relationship to what they believe Jesus is and who, they, and who they believe him to be. And so the first is those who say Jesus is Lord. So I have two points, those who say Jesus is Lord and those who know Jesus is Lord. Those who say Jesus is Lord, they just don't say that he's Lord, they say he, Lord, Lord. And the word that's used here is the same word that's used of Rome, uh, to, that the people would use to describe like Caesar or an emperor, that he is Lord. It is not just a term to reflect somebody's position. It is a term used to reflect somebody's divinity. So in Jesus' day in Rome, people believed that the emperor was a god or one of the gods. And they would call him Kyrios, which means Lord. It's the same word that's used for master. It's, it could be translated as master. It could be translated as owner. Um, and in, and in this case, Jesus said there are going to be people who recognize Jesus as divine. So these are people not only who, who call him Lord, they're orthodox in calling him Lord. They're theologically sound in the way they call him Lord. He is divine. He is not just some man. He is both man and he is God. He is Lord. And he is, you know, claims lordship over our lives. And so... So Jesus uses this literary device as a way of emphasis. It's the same literary device that's used in the Old Testament. When David's son Absalom died, David said this, King David, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. These are people who, who are, uh, they're, they're invested like in this Jesus. They believe everything that he claimed to be. And yet Jesus said that there will be many, not a few, many who he will say to them, I never had a relationship with you. Does that bother you? Like that should bother you right now. You're like, please make it get better, Keith. I think it does get better, 
But we need to understand what Jesus is saying here for, for, that, to, for that to happen. So, like I said earlier, these are people who, I mean, the people Jesus is describing are people who were pastors, people who were missionaries, people who were in the church, like physically in the church. They probably did their devotions in the morning. They, 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 they attended Sunday school or they taught children's church. Like they did all these different things. And yet Jesus never knew them. And, and not only did, were they orthodox in their belief of who Jesus was, but they were convinced they were serving him. I mean, think about that. Pastors, the wives of pastors, the children of pastors, there will be many who will hear, I never knew you. Seminary professors, life group leaders, will hear, I never knew you. And not just, I never knew you, but depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What is Jesus saying? Tim Keller said something I thought was really good. I want to share it with you. The words will be on the screen. He said, what Jesus is saying is, you have the doctrine right. You're excited about me. You're in the church. You're doing ministry. You're changing people's lives, and you're not saved. You have no saving relationship with me. There is no real spiritual connection with me. There never has been. I never knew you. And so the questions that we should be, that we should be asking ourselves right now in, con- in the context of these four sets of twos, right? The first set was uh, the, the narrow gate versus the wide gate. The, the other one was like last week we talked about it, the false teachers versus true, true teachers. And now here we find ourselves facing you know, the true Christian versus the, false, the, the fake Christian. And we should be asking ourselves, am I on the wide road or am I on the narrow road? Am I a tree that is diseased producing no fruit or am I a tree that produces fruit? Does Jesus know me as his own or does he not know me? Like that's, I think those are the questions Jesus is forcing us to ask ourselves as we encounter these verses. And just because, just because you claim, you claim to believe in Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that you really know him. This is a hard one, right? Just because your child said some prayer in some backyard Bible club that that child repeated some words doesn't mean that that child knows Jesus. Jesus prayed a prayer for, for those who would wind up following him, those who would wind up believing in him. It's in John chapter 17. I'd encourage you to, to read through it sometime. It's really, really encouraging. But those first three verses say this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know, gnosko, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus is not interested in lip service. He's not interested in some prayer you prayed. He's interested in your heart. That's the point here. He's interested in your heart. Where is your heart? What kind of relationship do you have with him? 
Like, like the Apostle Paul in, in Philippians chapter 3 contrasts, in, in that chapter, contrasts his relationship with Jesus versus his pursuit of religion before he met Jesus. So he was, he went to seminary, he studied under some of the best teachers, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he, 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 he knew the Old Testament and probably had much of it memorized. And then he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And he describes this, just what happened in terms of the worth of this, this relationship that he has in Philippians chapter 3, and, and this, is what he said, this is what he wrote. He said, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. That's a Gnosko word again. Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That is, uh, that's the nice word in the ESV that the ESV uses. It's really dung. I count it as dung in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that, that depends on faith. That's how I want to know him, Paul says. This is how I'm knowing him. I have this relationship with him, and all the pursuits that I had before is like, it's like dung compared to having Christ in this way. And he continues in, in, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. Let's read this together. Ready? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. How many of you are familiar with just Christians deconstructing their faith? Right? So, so there's, a, there's a number of them that like, I, don't, I no longer believe in Jesus. The way to prevent yourself from deconstructing your faith is to know Jesus in this way. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. I just don't want to know about it in my brain. I want to know it experientially, that I may share his suffering so that when cancer comes, I know, I know that when I breathe my final breath, there's something way more glorious on the other side of, of, of eternity becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may stand up amongst the dead ones. Literally, that's what the Greek would kind of lend itself to. Like, I would be standing up among the dead ones. That's how I want to know Jesus. That's how I want to know him. And, and the question that we're forced to ask ourselves as we read through this passage, as we study it, is do you know him in that way? Are you pursuing to know him in that way? Or is it just oida? Is it just... I, yeah, he's divine. He, yeah, he's the son of God. Yes, he's God in the flesh. And it doesn't leave the brain and never, it never penetrates your heart. Or do you gnosko him? Do I really know Jesus? Does he really know me? What place does he have in my life? Like These are, these are good questions to ask. In fact, the Bible encourages us to examine our faith. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul wrote this letter to this jacked-up church, and they said that they believed in Jesus, but some of their, for some of them, their lives weren't jiving with what they actually said they believed. And he said this, he said, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Test yourselves whether or not you belong. So, those are the, so there are people that say, who claim Jesus is Lord, and then there are those who know Jesus is Lord. They know that he is Lord. 
And my assumption is most of you in this room know Jesus as Lord. And, and so what is, go back to verse 21 here as we're looking at this passage. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who, what, does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What is Jesus saying there? So do we have to do stuff to get to heaven? Do we have to do righteous stuff to get to heaven? No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying that the fruit of a gnosko kind of knowledge of Jesus will evidence itself in the way you live your life. It's going to change your life. It's going to affect your appetites, which my guess is that many, if not maybe all of you in this room, can point, you can reflect on your life and see how you used to have appetites for certain things in life that have changed as a result of coming to know Christ. Can you think of those things? Like something has changed in you, and I could tell you what's changed. You've been born again. That's what the Bible says. You are a new creature in, in Him. It is in a gnosko kind of knowledge of, of, of Jesus is reflected in the way you live your life. Doing the Father's will is evidence that you're on the narrow way. That you came to the cross, you were poor in spirit, you had nothing in your hands to, to, to offer him, you recognized that, you were beside yourself, you came to the cross, mourning over your sin, blessed are those who mourn, that's the second beatitude, and you were willing to lay down your pride before the cross, blessed are the meek. Right? So all three of those things, you came to the cross, the narrow gate, and you were willing to enter that way naked. There was no room for your pride, no room for your self-righteousness, no room for any of that, only your, your, your willingness to surrender to the cross of Jesus Christ as your only hope and righteousness, period. And, and so that's how you arrived. And, and, and that's how you know you're on the narrow way. It's the life that's being changed as you follow Jesus. And I, I know that because of what he says here in verse 24. That's, this is next week's sermon, right? But I want to point this out to you. In verses 24 and 25, Jesus said this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine, what words, Jesus? The Sermon on the Mount. Anyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Who's the rock? Jesus Christ. It's all him. Like, that's the whole Sermon on the Mount. How do I, how do I live this out, Jesus? You have a relationship with him. It is that gnosko-type knowing Jesus. Don Carson, who uh, is considered... One of the leading New Testament scholars, very respected. But he also is a pretty good speaker. I've heard him speak at various conferences. He said something that I thought was really good. I wanted to share it with you. He said, it is true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience. But it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. It is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. But it is equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. Any other view of grace cheapens grace and turns it into something unrecognizable. Cheap grace preaches forgiveness without repentance, church membership without rigorous church discipline, discipleship without obedience, blessing without persecution, joy without righteousness, results without obedience. And here's what he concludes, and he says, he, he, he shares this, this question, this indictment on the American church. 
In the entire history of the church, has there ever been another generation with so many nominal Christians and so few real ones? I think Don, is, I think Don Carson's right. Jesus didn't use the word few here. Jesus is not like me when it comes to preaching. Sometimes I say stupid things, especially when I wander off my notes. Sometimes I come off sounding like an idiot, right? Like, that's not Jesus, though. Jesus' words here in the Sermon on the Mount are carefully thought out. He's thought through these. These are carefully chosen words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on in verse 22. On that day, he doesn't say that few will say this. He says, many will say this. Many will say, Lord, Lord, we, did we not prophesy in your name? And this is, this, is a, this is a cry of desperation on that day. These are people who are panicking. These are people who staked all of their, their, their confidence in an idea about Jesus, but didn't really have it affect their hearts and their, and their lives. They thought knowing Oida was enough. And, and, and so they plead with him, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? Jesus said, many will say that. Many will say that. And to the many, I will say to them, I never knew you in a relational kind of way. So I think what Don Carson said is right. And there are passages, scores of passages. There are three I just want to share with you that, that back this up. In James chapter 2, maybe you're familiar with it, in verse 14, it says, What good is it, my brothers, what good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and, and, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warned and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have what? Works is dead. And what James is saying there is faith, genuine faith is evidenced by works. It's evidenced by fruit. The Bible says love your neighbor as yourself. If you're following Jesus on the narrow way and, and you're getting to know him in a gnosko kind of way, you will love your neighbors or you will try to love your neighbors. There's another passage in Romans chapter 10. It says the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Why doesn't Paul use head here? Why does he say, with your head you believe? Why does he use heart? Because there's so much more. It's, just, it's so much more than just believing some facts about the gospel. It's trusting it. I did not see any person walk into this room this morning and examine the chair that you sat in. Nobody turned on their light on their cell phone and examined all, make, to make sure all the screws were there. You just came in and you sat down in the chair. Why? Because you trusted it would hold you up. You just didn't believe it. You trusted it. James says, you know, faith without works is dead because the evidence of saving faith, the evidence that you believe in Jesus with your heart will evidence its way and be seen in the way you live your life. And, and Paul says the way you believe is not just confessing with your mouth, but also, also believing in your heart. But then Jesus said in John chapter 14, he said this, let's read this together, ready? 
if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So when you look at these two different types of people, the ones who say Jesus is Lord and the ones who know Jesus is Lord, what's the difference between those two groups of people? Love, obedience. But love, it's love. It's, man, this, this king, this savior, this Lord, I love him. I believe that he is, that he is God in flesh. I believe that he lived the life that, he, that I could never live, and he died this death that I certainly deserve to die under the wrath of God, but I just don't believe it in my head. I feel that. Like, I feel it. And he is everything to me. He is everything to me. Now, I think if we're all honest, when people are watching us, and even when we are honest with our own hearts, that doesn't always reflect itself in our lives. But man, my appetites are changing. My guess is that your desire is like the desire I have. I can't wait for the day that I no longer struggle with sin. I can't wait for that day. Anybody? Takers? Like, I can't wait. Why? Because your appetites are changing. There was a day in your life, there was a day in my life, where, like, what's the big deal with sin? What's the big deal? But now I, my heart is to please him, to know him in a gnosko kind of way. The one who knows Jesus as Lord has come to him, not only because he is the only way to heaven, not only because he is the only means to receive the forgiveness of sins, not only because he conquered death and promises the same to all who trust him, but because he is a treasure to be treasured. He is a beauty to be beheld. He is a majesty to be wandered at. He is a savior to be prized, a redeemer to be treasured, a, and the Lord of glory to be worshiped. That's very different than just paying lip service to Jesus. This is the point that I read a book a while back, earlier this year, that John Piper wrote, and he said something there I cannot improve upon, improve upon. I think he said it so well. I'm going to read it for you. He said, Saving faith does not receive Christ as disappointing. It does not receive Christ as boring or foolish or inferior or secondary or ugly or undesirable. Saving faith receives Christ as he really is, not that we know the totality of his greatness at the beginning of our relationship, but given what we do know, we see him as supremely desirable. No one could be a greater source of joy than Christ. Saving faith tastes this. It realizes the substance and receives Christ as, as such with what? Joy. With joy. And could there be any other possible reason why the redeemed in heaven continue to sing and shout like these words in Revelation chapter 5. Let's, let's read this together as though we believe it. Ready? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen? That's very different than just head knowledge. That's very different than oida. That's gnosko right there. That's, that's, a, that's a relationship. And, and so uh, Ryan's going to come up and prepare to lead us in, in a final song. But as we sing this song, even before you start singing, just ask yourself the question that Jesus wants us to ask ourselves, and that is, 
to whom does my heart really belong? To whom does my heart really belong? And for those in this room, who maybe, you, maybe you're just not sure. Maybe you're like, I, I don't know, man. I've I just been showing up to church because it's, I thought that's the Christian thing to do. The question I would like to leave with you is, will you choose this day to pursue Jesus in a gnosko kind of way? I'm not saying do something to earn your salvation. I'm saying come to him as the treasure that he is, to know him. Playing church will not, will not end well for you, but a relationship that is solely dependent on him as your source of righteousness, as your life, as your treasure, that's what saving faith looks like. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you that we can be here. Thank you for Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let me read these verses just, just as a way of encouraging your heart. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.